Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with teacher and author Sebene Selassie for the Real Change podcast series. Sebene has studied Buddhism for over 30 years and received a BA from McGill University in Religious and Women's Studies and an MA from the New School, where she focused on cultural studies and race. For over 20 years, she worked with children, youth, and families nationally and internationally for small and large not-for-profits. Her work has taken her everywhere from the Tenderloin in San Francisco to refugee camps in Guinea, West Africa. Sebene has been teaching meditation workshops, courses, and retreats for over a decade. And her first book, You Belong, 
was released in August of 2020 by Harper One. 7A is proud to have served on the boards of New York Insight Meditation Center, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and Sacred Mountain Sangha. Welcome back to the Meta Hour, 7A. Thank you, Sharon. So, so delighted to be here. And such a, a deep congratulations to you on the release of your first book. It's, it's a very big deal. Tell me how it feels to bring this book into the world, especially at this very intense moment in time. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for the congratulations. I don't know how you can keep doing it over <laughs> and over again. It's, um, yeah, it's it's quite a process to write it and then, of course, to put it out there. And um, a few people have asked me, you know, how much of it did I write before the pandemic and before the recent uprisings of racial justice? Because it feels so in line and tune with those. And although I added in a few sentences here and there in the final pass of the book, it, it actually was written over the past year and a half. So um, it feels very uh, powerful to be putting out a book about belonging when we're kind of right in the thick of that theme uh, mm -hmm. as a planet. Yeah. So when did you get to put those uh, last few sentences in? Um, right after the murder of George Floyd and uh -huh. as the protests were coming, I was doing the final pass. So I was able uh -huh. to, you know, put in just a couple of acknowledgments of that. That's very powerful all in and of itself. So here's a quote from the book. Belonging is not dependent on things being as we want them to be. It is not necessary to achieve success, behave like everyone else, have the perfect partner, be the perfect size or shape. In fact, the forces of oppression need not even magically disappear for us to experience belonging. And get this, we also don't need to feel belonging to belong. Belonging is truth, and it is the fundamental nature of reality right here and now, whether we feel it or not. So I have a passage. It's so funny because we have books coming out. They're like, they are like cousins. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, I guess uh, a week after your book, something like that, very soon after your book comes out, my book is coming out. And, and uh, there's a chapter in my book on uh, kind of admitting or taking in the joy, you know, that as we are working on all these internal changes and, and maybe trying to affect the world. Um, we need some sense of joy just to kind of, you know, uplift us or help us keep going. And, and at one point, one of the editors I was working with really questioned me, like, what do you mean by happiness? What do you mean by joy? And I said, well, it's kind of like belonging, you know, that's the feeling that I think we can't afford to lose if we're making those kinds of efforts. I, I completely agree. And if our freedom is dependent on the external reality being a particular way, then we can never touch into that freedom. And I think we're both saying that, that it, it doesn't mean that we don't have grief or even upset at what's happening around us and want to make change, but that doesn't, um, that that's not mutually exclusive from the fact that we can experience joy and freedom and that sense of belonging in our life. It seems too that that sense of belonging is so 
fundamental. It's like so foundational and, and it's so threatened by so many things in the stories others tell about us or society in, at large may tell about us or the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And there's so many factors. And so it, it feels to me like if that's shaky, everything else is, is going to be a kind of reaction to that shakiness. You know, how can I get more? How can I be more? Something that will help establish that feeling. Yeah. And I, I know for myself, I definitely experienced that shakiness. I love that as an idea uh, throughout most of my life, you know, until I started practicing and started doing a lot of self-development work and spiritual work. I did feel that sense of of lostness, of not belonging, and and I think that that's um, evident now in the epidemic of loneliness. I remember reading recently about the the high suicide rates or rising rates among middle school students, mm -hmm. and just heartbreaking that you know so many people don't feel that sense of belonging because of all the forces that you you were describing. So what motivated you to write a book? Like I wrote Loving Kindness uh, 10 years after I'd gone to Burma, which is where I did my first intensive kind of immersive experience in loving kindness meditation. And that was uh, 14 years after I started meditating altogether. So it was a, a long period for me. So. When did you start meditating and, and what motivated you to write a book at this point? I started meditating in earnest in my mid-20s when I started practicing with a Zen teacher. Um, so I'm going to be 50 this year, so about 25 years ago. I I didn't know I wanted to write a book. I, I was keeping a blog and sending out a newsletter and I've always liked writing but it was actually um, my agent, Anna Geller, who approached me and asked if I had ever thought of writing a book. And, and as we started talking and meeting and talking about ideas, I realized the book I wanted to write was on belonging. That's beautiful. I, you know, I've, I've read your book, of course, because I think I wrote a blurb for it. You and, uh, Thank you. I, yeah, and I remember writing, reading, I didn't write the proposal, I read the proposal. I remember reading the proposal. And uh, I can't remember if you use the image of the Statue of Liberty or not, which I use, you know, because she's like one of my icons. And, and that I realized that what she is conveying was is that sense of belonging like you belong to even you you know oh i love that i didn't use that image i should have oh um, feel free <laughs> <laughs> but that's that is and and i love um you know the strength and the certainty of of the of lady liberty um lighting that torch of belonging because that that certainty is so important i i loved what you said about it being shaky our sense of belonging yeah. and um it's so true i used this quote by desmond tutu and he says we are because we belong it is mm -hmm. it is the fact of fundamental nature of reality that we are interconnected we're not separate we belong to all of nature but again our families, our culture, history, society, inequities, uh, divisions, they all threaten that sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And how old were you when you came to the States? 
I was three when we uh, immigrated from Ethiopia. And in a lot of ways, I think I was, um, I had the easiest time of many of my uh, family. So of my siblings and uh, also cousins, because I was the youngest. Um, My brother was eight years older than me. And so I had a chance to really absorb American culture in a different way. And still, I felt like I didn't belong because I was moving through different languages and cultural realities, not to mention we were a black family living in a white neighborhood and going to mostly oh. white schools. So I, I really felt very strongly that sense of not belonging on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Yeah. And it's really wonderful. I mean, in a way that that no doubt painful experiences has been a source of you helping others and, you know, kind of, giving voice to that experience in a way that um, is creative and and has the opportunity for people to really examine it and come to a place of of greater settling themselves. Yeah, I use this image in my book um, of margin and center because we often talk about the margins as if that's a deficit, like we say marginalized mm-hmm. communities. And it's true, there are um, lacks usually of resources and money and access in the margins, but they also gives you a lot of perspective. So mm-hmm. there's something um, I find that's been really enriching about being on the margins and being able to see the sense that we're all this one larger circle and know that ultimately we do belong to each other. Um, And I see that in, you know, the young activists now, I have to say there's uh, so much uh, power in, for example, the prison abolition movement or, you know, movements that are questioning whether we can use the same systems Mm -hmm. that are so harmful to rectify the problems you know, if we kind of use these punitive, damaging systems, then we, we're not really believing that we belong to each other. Interesting, because, uh, you know, some things that beset us um, are really like the assumptions that we make. And if you're kind of in the center or you feel like you're in the center, you're actually, I think no one is ever actually in the center, but sometimes we do feel that way. Mm. I tell this story in my book, which I'm very fond of, uh, which I tell everywhere about this time I was riding in a car with a friend and we were stuck in this terrible, horrible, hideous traffic and complaining bitterly about it (laughs) the whole while. And then my friend turned to me and said, we're the traffic too, you know. And I thought, oh, what an interesting experience. It's like the center just dropped out with me in it, you know. (laughs) What's that feeling like? It's my road. I own it. You are an interloper. You don't belong. You're taking up space, you know. And like we're the traffic too, right? All in this together. And so, but there is this very different perspective from, as you say, the so-called margins, where you're not making the same assumptions. And and maybe that's a reason we all desperately need to be in conversation with each other, is so we can challenge those assumptions. Yeah, and really see that what harms one harms us all so mm-hmm. that we we actually need new models, new perspectives, new systems so that we all see we're the traffic, you know, we are the... Yeah. And we're also the solution to the traffic. Mm-hmm. So here's another quote from your book. 
Our culture is steeped in oppressive forces, and those forces are powerful. Once we begin to see this, we slowly stop blaming ourselves for the way we continually buy into separation and domination and for feelings of internalized oppression that we know are there but can't seem to drop. We have to keep reminding ourselves these are the culture's thoughts, and the culture is really shitty. They adopted these patterns of comparison and competition, of hierarchy and oppression. They are not mine. I absorbed separation and domination the same way I absorbed language. Only then can we look even more closely at these patterns and how they are playing out today, often unconsciously. Yeah, I'm referring there to this quote. Um, I think it's a paraphrase of Krishnamurti's. Uh, you think you're thinking your thoughts. You're not. You're thinking the culture's thoughts. Yeah. So I think one of the things about looking at these patterns of hierarchy, oppression, this delusion of separation that can lead us into dominating tendencies, and I see that all the time in myself in different ways, that we think that, you know, it is us, this kind of unskillful behavior, but really we're just playing out the patterns of our culture. Uh We've been taught that from, you know, the time we enter school and start competing for grades and sports and start getting compared to our siblings and each other. And of course, it's going to play out everywhere from a yoga class to work to politics to our activism. Well, it reminds me of this theme in my book, which is really about the stories others tell about us. And I was in Kentucky um, visiting Bell Hooks and teaching at her institute. And I used that example, and she actually used that example also um, because it was in my, my previous book, Real Love, as well. And somebody in the room raised their hand and they said, I don't get it. You know, like people don't tell stories about us. They don't know us. How could they be telling a story about us? And I said, everything tells a story about us, you know, like who the world, you could say the culture thinks we are and what we deserve and where we belong. And um, I use the example, as you know very well, I'm sure, uh, at the Insight Meditation Society, we moved in in 1976 and um we always had a ramp so that it was accessible for people, but the ramp was in the back. And somewhere just a few years ago, we decided, you know, it's just not right that people in wheelchairs have to go down that icy driveway and mm-hmm. all the way around to the back. It's like, the, it's the wrong message. It's the wrong story to be telling about mm-hmm. who belongs. And, mm-hmm. and so we built that humongous ramp, which uh, is, you know, it's now like another structure in the front of the building so that, uh, people in wheelchairs can go right in the front, and it's really big. It's not very attractive. And I knew it was going to be trouble for me because um, the place where teachers park uh, means you kind of have to back out right by there. And I'm not a great driver. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I drive in my 30s, you know. And I think the staff at one point was taking bets on how long it was going to be before I bashed into the thing. You know? <laughs> hasn't happened yet, but will happen, I'm sure, someday. But you know what? It's the right story to tell. That's a great illustration. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. You know, people are constantly reading us based on the color of our skin, our size, how we look, how we dress, what car we drive. Everything about us tells a story. There's there's sort of that, um, you know, signs and symbols in, in everything we do, our accents, how we speak. So it, it's it's impossible to not kind of read all of reality and and then based on our assumptions and our conditioning you know we might be evaluating so inherent bias is another theme our books share um and for starters the basic thinking that we are separate and that what happens over there will nicely stay over there and not affect me over here which we're seeing right now uh, starting with the pandemic is absolutely not correct. And so um, it's the stories others tell about us. It's the stories we've absorbed and it's the stories we tell about others, like who belongs and who doesn't. Yes. I mean, those those stories and our assumptions, the way we read the world is completely based on um, the stories we've heard. So I, I often tell uh, people who are kind of fearful, let's say, of looking at their own biases and the, you know, unconscious bias, the most important part of that phrase is the unconscious part. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't see it. So you may have, we all have, hopefully, egalitarian goals and values, but unconsciously we've absorbed all these messages that we've been describing and, and then we project that out onto who we see. So we don't even know that we are um, we may think we see people as equal, but we actually are projecting all of these biases onto them. And I, I really don't understand how people can talk about inherent bias and unconscious bias and not talk about mindfulness at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because how else will you uncover what is unconscious, what is inherent, what is implicit, or you know, some, sometimes in psychology it's talked about as like the shadow material. You can't see that unless you really, really pay close attention to your mind and to your thoughts and to all the patterns that are happening. So kind of trying to do that work without having some kind of contemplative way to, to start to look at your own mind, I think it's impossible. What do you think? I think it's totally impossible. And it's also, you know, mindfulness and, and being aware is part of it. And then there's the very tricky arena, which I don't even know if I have the words to describe so totally well, where we feel the pain and we need to feel the pain of having held certain assumptions, say, or certain biases. But that's also accompanied by Really, it's almost like a scientific finding. And somebody, one psychologist said to me once in a thing I was doing, she said, um, the brain that is like driven by shame cannot learn. Mm, yes. And, and what we want in the end is the learning. You know, we want behavior change. We want a different sensibility, a different worldview for ourselves as well. And And sort of feel the pain of, things we've said or things we've done or assumptions we've held and and not kind of just go over that line, you know, to where we're now just awash in, in shame. And so we're not learning anymore. And that is also in a way, it's a very subtle part of mindfulness. It's just hard to describe. Yeah. And I, I, that's why I also love that Krishnamurti quote, because it removes that sense of blame. And so 
it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to, and and feeling that shame initially is, is natural, but like Mm -hmm. you said, we don't have to be driven by it. It doesn't have to rule us because that actually prevents us from doing the work of seeing things clearly and then releasing Mm -hmm. and resolving it. Yeah. There's this book, I don't know if you know it, about um, intergenerational trauma called It Didn't Start With You. Mm-hmm. So I, I was recommending that book for uh, about a year after I read it, and I kept uh, mistitling it. And I would tell you know my coaching clients or students, I would say, oh yeah, you should check out this book. It's called It's Not Your Fault. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because none of it is, you know, both what we inherit epigenetically, because we we may have patterns of anxiety or trauma, and then also what we inherit culturally, all the hierarchies, all the divisions, you know, that's all constructed and patterned and um, we, we didn't wish it upon ourselves. Mm-hmm. Interesting, which brings us to the topic of self-love. So here's another quotation from your book. Loving ourselves is as much an undoing as a doing. The love is available, always, inside and outside. And yet because we are conditioned into the delusion of separation, love is not our default operating mode. So I really love that quotation. Can you say more about it? Yeah, you know, someone was asking me about this when we were talking about shame, and they said, so I'm supposed to love my shame? And Mm. it's not the patterns, especially the unskillful patterns that we're trying to release, the ones that are harmful to us or to others, but it's really loving ourselves before that conditioning. You know, and seeing that those those patterns, that conditioning, that unconscious material, um, and the behaviors that come out of it, that that's not what we're loving. We're loving ourselves despite the fact that we're caught in that conditioning. And that that took me a really long time to kind of grok and and to be able to, whenever I see them, really just even put a heart on my hand and and say, oh yeah, okay, I see that and I love you, you know, mm-hmm. despite these things that are that are kind of covering over that true belonging that's there. And I also think, and and I really love your view on this, um, you know, there's a certain quality of self-love that rises up in people when they are rising up, you know, and they're saying enough. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, you know, I interviewed so many social activists and change agents for my book, and and I could see that pattern, you know, that people were... Um, having to come to a place because sometimes they got very little external support for their actions, you know, even their families were like, don't rock the boat, you know, and, mm-hmm. and but there's something in them that said, I deserve better because people, all people deserve better, you know, such as me, like it's an entitlement thing, but um, this is how people should be treated. And, and so there, there's some kind of, growth or, or sparking of self-love, I think that's involved there as well. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And we, we see it with the greatest social movements, you know, and the greatest social leaders, they're really grounded in love, whether it's, uh, you know, Dr. King or 
um, Mandela or Desmond Tutu, these leaders who um, are coming from a place of of that deep sense of belonging, of knowing their inherent worth to rise up against systems that are constantly and often violently denying them that sense of worth. So it's true. There has to be that radical self-love um, in order to, to rise up against such strong messages and, and, and uh, forces that are trying to deny that. Do you think love is the connection between meditation practice and social action? I like that. I have I hadn't thought of it in that way, but it really it really has to be, right? And and again, I point to the prison abolition movement. I and early on when people were um um you know, pointing out that Brianna Taylor's murderers are are not been charged or still free, um I was sort of calling for their arrest. And I don't know. I haven't, you know, I, I really need to do some more soul searching and also more understanding externally. But I stopped saying that because I started to really listen to this radical idea that, no, we can't use the same punitive systems to solve our problems. And so what we're asking for is a complete change. You know, if we want a true shift into that idea of love and belonging, then we actually need restorative systems. And and I I am not a, a legal activist or scholar. And um, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. I teach people to sit around and do nothing. So mm-hmm. uh, who am I to say? But I am listening very deeply right now to understand what does that mean. Like to really um, have a. a an expansive sense of imagination to imagine new systems, new ways of dealing with these current issues. I think that one of the most corrosive feelings any of us can have is that sense of helplessness, hopelessness. And I think there is an interesting connection between our sense of belonging in a group and a sense of agency or ability to affect change. Um, And do you find in your experience that belonging is kind of a prerequisite for community engagement or activism? Yes. I, you know, I think it's a prerequisite for any kind of um, social engagement and harmony, really, because if we are coming from a sense or an idea of separation, then we're in delusion, we're not seeing the truth of reality. And I have this saying that I say a couple of times throughout the book that although we're not one, we're not separate. And although we're not separate, we're not the same. So we have mm-hmm. to be able to understand that paradox that you know, fundamentally, energetically, if you look at science in terms of you know, understandings of physics and also in a spiritual sense, we are totally interconnected. There's actually no separation in the deepest an ancient indigenous wisdom tells us that science tells us that, but obviously, you know, I'm sitting here in Brooklyn, you're in Barrie, Massachusetts. We, we have separate relative realities too. And to lean too much into one or the other really causes that sense of, of dissonance and shakiness in our belonging. Cause we can cling to the harmony of, Oh, but we're all one and I don't see race and we're all interconnected. 
or we can cling to the divisions and the challenges, which, you know, anyone who's done any amount of community or group work, especially in a multicultural context, knows that it's messy at best. Mm-hmm. So to to really um, not lose sight of either side of that, you know, we are we are interconnected, we're not separate, and we have these challenges of of our differences in, in life. Well, speaking of hopelessness, <laughs> I was interviewed um, a few weeks ago for, uh, by the New York Times about doom scrolling, which oh, I'd never even heard the term before. And I thought, <laughs> what is that? You know, and I, I decided that's my favorite word. So, of course, what it means is just like, say, scrolling through Twitter, or scrolling through social media, looking for one bad story after another. And it was one of our teaching colleagues yours and mine, that actually recommended to the journalists that they interview me. And, and I had a lot to say because I happen to do it sometimes. And, uh, <clears throat> and then when I looked at the article, uh, I was in it and she was not, the colleague. So I thought, oh, I wonder why she recommended me. <laughs> I wonder if she knows I do it. And she actually doesn't. So she had nothing to say. But uh, there's so many ways we use our attention that can just undo us, you know. and uh, there's a certain amount of choice involved in how we're spending our time, how we're spending our lives, how we're extending our energy. And so first I was going to ask you, do you doom scroll <laughs> the way I do sometimes? Oh my God, I've never heard that phrase. I know. That, that oh, term is so phrase. good. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I do. Um, and, and I have, especially at the beginning of this pandemic and then um, at the start of the, the uprisings for Black Lives, um, I definitely was doing that. And I periodically clear up uh, my social media feed, my email subscriptions, and I start unsubscribing from anything that I feel is not really connected to the truth of belonging. I mean, that's, that's my way of putting it right now, but it's really people who are divisive and, um, and that's not the same as being critical. You know, I, I, I love this phrase from Darwa Tarshan Phillips, uh, Tibetan Lama Dharma teacher. He said, you can take a stand without taking a side. Mm. Uh-huh. So I really use that as kind of my measure to understand, do I really want to keep taking this in from this person or this piece of media. So I'll, I, I do that really regularly. I also mute people. <laughs> uh-huh. So if someone is a, a doom poster, you know, someone uh-huh. who just constantly posts, uh, and it's not even that they're, they're negative, but they, um, maybe they have a sense of wanting to educate or, um, get information out there, but they're not even aware that all that they're putting out there is, is, is harsh, is negative, is, um, upsetting, is overwhelming, um, in, in the name of sort of, uh, keeping people engaged, there's a way in which there's no uplift. And of course the news, I mean, the news should really be called the bad news because it's not all the news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's sensational news and and news that will grasp our attention, which is, you know, either celebrity junk or usually uh, disaster. So um, we're not hearing about all the wonderful things going on and uh, all the advances and all the harmony and all the growth and all the spiritual expansion and awakening. So 
Yeah, definitely try and limit that doom scrolling. <laughs> it's such a great phrase. It's the best. Um, no, that's beautiful because, I mean, it, it's, it points to how, you know, we need to use our mind. We need to use our awareness in very conscious ways, uh, not to be conflict avoidant and to further deny the truth of suffering because it's useless, um, but to really create a kind of balance for ourselves so that we have the energy to care, to keep caring and to remember to include rather than exclude and, and to really try to work to make this a better world. It's like you need some juice flowing for that. And, and I think that's something we just have to be conscious of. Yeah. And it's up to each of us to see kind of where, which pole we, we tend towards. And if there's a version there, you know, or grasping, you know, if we want to always be in the harmonies, we're like, I'm only going to listen to good news. I, you know, good vibes only kind of a, a blatant, like numbing or ignoring or shutting off of what's true of our reality too, which is suffering and injustice and oppression, but we can also get caught in the other side and just doom scroll. So it's always that balancing and our, our practice is so much about balancing in general. Mm -hmm. So on that note, to close our conversation, I would love it if you would lead us in a guided meditation. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so just wherever you are, finding a comfortable way to sit or stand, if you're lying down, just really feeling that sense of groundedness. That's where belonging begins in that sense of connection to the earth, to our bodies. And you can take a few deep breaths in and out to just allow yourself to relax and release. And if you'd like to close your eyes, you can do that. You can keep them open and just have a soft gaze. Allowing your breath to come to its natural rhythm. Just right here, feeling the ground underneath you, perhaps the floor under your feet or the chair under your seat. Can you feel that sense of just belonging to this body? Just acknowledging that this being, this body has been with you since you arrived here on this planet. This is your home, your home within this home. You can anchor or settle your awareness, just resting your attention on the sensations of this body. You can do this anytime and in any way, feeling the contact with the earth. You can feel the breath. 
coming in and out of the body. And if you'd like to stay with the breath, simply noticing this breathing process, this aliveness that is your belonging in every moment. As you feel each inhale and each exhale, Knowing that you belong to each breath, to each moment. Allowing the breath to settle the mind, be a place to rest your awareness and just experience this incredible living life of belonging. And recognizing that thoughts happen, they're not a mistake or a problem. They're simply part of this process. We can rest our awareness, settle it back into the breath and the body. And feeling the breath, recognizing this air moves in and out, connecting us to all breathing beings. In fact, all life around this globe, around this planet. That this very breath is an experience of our belonging. Moment to moment from when we arrive until the very last breath.
And opening your eyes when you're ready, remembering that anytime you feel that shakiness, you can connect to your feet, to the earth, to your breath, and know that you belong right here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to not actually see you, but at least to hear you <laughs> and be together. It's really nice to be together, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sebine and I are actually going to do a few evenings together um, and probably more in the works that I don't even know about yet, but uh, which is a great delight. I will actually get to see her on a screen at any rate. Uh, we're going to do an evening together August 19th for New York Insight. We're going to do an evening together uh, with Joseph Goldstein and Dan Harris on October 1st, which is a benefit for New York Insight and for uh, some other organizations. So it's really uh, a great delight. To learn more about Sebene's work, you can visit www.sebenesselassie.com. That's S E B E N. E-S-E-L-A-S-S-I-E dot com. And I highly, highly recommend getting yourself a copy of her new book, You Belong, which is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats wherever books are sold. A big thank you to all of the listeners out there. This has been the Real Change series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy. And may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. To receive a free meditation from the book, pre-order your copy today at realchangebook.com. <laughs>